This is Story and Rain Talks, the Story and Rain podcast. I'm Tamara, founder and editor in chief. After over 20 years in the fashion and magazine industries, I launched StoryandRain.com, a digital fashion, beauty, and lifestyle publication where we're bridging the gap between reading a magazine and shopping its pages. On this podcast, you'll discover the emerging trends and tastemakers that matter right now. As a catalyst for creativity and through candid conversations with our community of cultural arbiters, we're your resource for discovering today's most interesting people, projects, and products. And we'll explore the origins for game-changing ideas and careers. With our high-low approach to style and the belief that there's magic in the mix, we're going to inspire you to live your most stylish life. Actor, activist, and Story and Rain cover star Frida Pinto, known for acclaimed films such as Slumdog Millionaire and Trishna, returns to the screen this summer in the delightful Mr. Malcolm's List, a movie that shakes up what we've come to know as the period genre in film. The new mother is fiercely focused when it comes to her work. And on episode 106, Frida explains how and why her production company, Freebird Films, seeks out projects that allow her to tell stories that angle towards hope. And they're about to make some big moves. Listen in as Frida discusses the stories she believes are lacking on the screen, how she prepares for a role, her desire to step far out of herself for them, her preference to remain on the go on any given project. You'll hear intimate stories about the many prolific directors she's worked with, like Ron Howard, Danny Boyle, Terrence Malick, and Woody Allen, as well as what it's like working with first-time director, actor Kristen Scott Thomas on My Mother's Wedding, which she's currently shooting, co-starring Scarlett Johansson and Sienna Miller, one of the most fun cast she's ever been a part of. Frida talks about her most taxing roles, shares stories from set and the valued relationships she's created there, including a surprisingly sweet story about Sir Anthony Hopkins. We talk motherhood, her work with postpartum plan and brand Anya, and what it's like to be part of a creative couple. We get into details about Mr. Malcolm's List, her latest film out on July 1st, and we cover everything from its modern and inclusive international vibe to the notion of having a checklist when looking for a partner, and how and when she's created one for herself. We go back to the beginning, her school days, her modeling days, and why she disliked it, and all things her very first film and smash hit 2008's Slumdog Millionaire. Inspiration, living internationally, how series and film have converged, and more. What a great conversation. Up next with Frida Pinto. Hello, hello. Hi, Frida. Hi, Tamara. How are you? I'm good. How are you? It's so nice to be talking to you on a Saturday morning. Let's get into it. Growing up in India, when was it exactly that the urge to be an actress started surfacing? Can you tie this to a particular moment? Absolutely, I can. I remember very clearly, I think it was 1994, when Sushmita Sen won uh, Miss Universe. And I think I must have been 12 years old or 13 years old. And I remember for the very first time recognizing a young Indian woman being celebrated and recognized on an international platform, being respected for her grace, her intelligence, her beauty, all of it. And I don't know if I'm thinking of it more deeply now or if I thought of it as deeply then, but I do believe as children, an impression that has formed pretty early on can be a pretty powerful impression as well you know it can be a pretty powerful way so of like true pivoting towards what you might want to see your future becoming and so I remember telling my mom and dad I didn't I I don't think I really wanted to 
you know, be a pageant girl or anything. But I do remember telling them that whatever I do, I want it to be celebrated on a world platform. And I don't know how that idea even came into my mind, but it was a very clear idea that I just wanted to do something that was international from a very, very, very young age. And it was not really the fame or the glamour that drew me to it. It was really just watching, and the word is really respect, watching everyone know Sushmita's name. That kind of made me feel, oh, okay, that's respect, that's recognition. And so, you know, that that was definitely my you know, the kind of like a manifestation that I might have uh, willed very, very early on. Yes. Yeah. And as I started continuing, you know, through school and college, I found myself like very naturally drawn to, in the extracurricular part, always drawn to drama and dramatics and theater. And it was, yes, of course, amateur theater, but nonetheless, stuff that I really enjoyed doing, I would write my own plays and direct them. And, you know, that's kind of a road I'm hoping to go down on as well, not writing specifically, but definitely directing. Mm. And also I would, you know, put organize and produce and do put all of it together. So really uh, now that I have a child of my own, I am noticing that so much of who we become, there are little glimpses of it in our childhood already. Interesting. Yes. You know, not necessarily, you know, the exact same thing that you did in your childhood is the exact same thing. Not fully fleshed out, but glimmers. Yes. Right. Yeah. But definitely there are glimmers. The organizer in me has definitely translated into the producer in me, Mm. you know, and there's many other things that I see myself now and I can recognize a certain aspect of my childhood personality seeping in now into my adult personality. So, yeah, I think that was the first moment that I could remember very, very clearly. You recently had a baby whom we met shooting our cover story at your lovely home. Parents and new parents often talk about how having children really shifts perspective. How has Rumi shifted your thinking, your way of being, your perspective as an actor, as a creative? What I'm noticing that I'm doing with Rumi is I'm being more observant and still Mm. and really letting him show me, as opposed to me always guiding him, letting him show me what he wants to do, how he wants to express it, And of course, he's just seven months, but gosh, they're so intelligent already at seven months. They're so resourceful. (laughs) You know, of course, they're not like they don't have control over their impulses and they're too little for logical thinking and all of that. (laughs) That's not what I'm really saying. But I'm just saying that he is already he has a style of communicating, which if I just let him, I believe that I will understand him better. And so I think he's like showing me pretty early on or rather teaching me very early on to stay still and be observant. And I think that's what my parents did with me as well in many ways, because they always reminded me, even as a child, that whatever my passion was, I was completely free and open to chase it, completely free and open to make that happen for myself. So what I'm really noticing with children is that they always show you who they're going to become very early on. Speaking of your family, do you share this skill of yours for acting with anyone in your family or is anyone else in your family artistic? Yes, we have a lot of artistic people in my family, but there's no one actually in the film industry or the the acting world. But I do hear from my cousins that their children definitely want to follow in my footsteps. Ah, nice. So sometimes I'm like, hmm, do I want to encourage this? (laughs) (laughs) Well, they'll get great advice from you. That's for sure. Oh, my God. I I don't know. I mean, 
it is a tough industry. It's great when it's great. It's horrible when it's horrible. The lows are low and the highs are high. And and you've really got to have a good head on your shoulders <laughs> to kind of to stay grounded through it all. So, I mean, yeah, I'm the first and hopefully won't be the last. How did you choose what to study in college? I know you studied English literature like me. What was the thought process behind what you would study? Yes, that's a very good question. No one's asked me uh, that question quite like that because everyone assumes that you pick a certain subject for the love of it, you know? But right. what do you do when someone is actually more inclined towards the extracurricular? <laughs> I wanted to work in fashion, but I studied English literature and I minored in French and Russian. Yes. And there must have been a reason why you did it as well in, you know, in that particular way. And yes, very much so I have a reason too. There was a class in literature, which was a film and literature class. And it was just one part of the course. But of course, it was the only one that I was looking forward to. <laughs> and of course, I loved, enjoyed, you know, studying Renaissance, Restoration, all of the various literature from the various periods and American literature and Indian literature, of course. All of it was fun and a big draw, books, stories. But really what I was most drawn to was the adaptation class, the film adaptation, film and literature class. That was definitely one of the main reasons why I took on English literature, because obviously psychology or economics, or none of none of those others were going to kind of draw, you know, give me an opportunity to do something close. The closest that I could get to film was that, in other words. Psychology and economics were my minors. And I think I might have just taken those on because my sister took them on, I think. <laughs> so no, no real reason. <laughs> I enjoy psychology, but I can't imagine having graduated in psychology and just too much studying for me. <laughs> you spent some time focusing on modeling. What do you recall most about modeling? And was there a job or a moment that you loved or any that you hated? Funnily enough, and this is like no disrespect to the modeling world. Funnily enough, the thing that I always remember about modeling was how much I did not like it because I was always very opinionated and always had something to say, always wanted to say something and quite frankly, wanted to be heard. Yeah. But time and again, when I had a suggestion as a model and I would present it, I was told that I was just a model. So I just had to shut up and do my job, you know, just pose, just smile or... We don't need that from you. This is what you're here for. Yes. Exactly. Very frustrating. And so that frustrated me. That was the exact word I was going for that really frustrated me. And I, I think I modeled for about a year or something. And I was like, oh gosh, I, I can't see myself going further in this. It makes me feel a little underused and not so smart, even though models can be so smart. There are some who are so highly educated. Absolutely. Yeah. And can really strike up great conversations and they are geniuses. And for some reason, when I started off, I wasn't allowed that space. And so I quickly was looking for a pivot and I really wanted to act, but quite frankly, that opportunity, you know, Bollywood was already such an established industry. Yes. You got to know someone to get somewhere. Saturated, <laughs> you know? yes. And I knew nobody. And my sensibility was like the parallel cinema, the art cinema of India, which there wasn't really much happening in that world. And so I really waited for 
a sign, you know, that this is what you're going to do next or whatever. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And the very next thing that happened was I traveled all over Southeast Asia as a travel show host, (laughs) which was so fun. It's a mix of a little bit of everything, right? You get to see the world, you get to act in some way. And I get to speak about it and I get to have an opinion and I get to ask and learn learn and ask impromptu questions, be asked questions and expect it good answers to it. So I think it was a good blend and a good stepping stone into what I would do next. It kind of also opened my mind because it took me all over the world and it really broadened my horizons and made me respect and understand other cultures and actually want to explore more of it, which is also as you know, when you're acting, you kind of have to go in and out of so many different characters and roles. And it's such a good exercise in fully immersing yourself. And so, yeah, I think the frustrating part of modeling made pushed me to go and find something else for myself. And when you did that, did you find that coming from this background in modeling, you had to deal with sort of fighting to be taken seriously as an actor or did you sort of find your footing right away? You know, I used to always get frustrated whenever they'd go Frida Pinto, model, actress and whatever. I'm like, I don't model and I'm not modeling anymore. But over time, I've understood (laughs) that as an actor, sometimes you're also modeling. You're modeling a brand or a product or, you know, you're modeling for something. Your character could be an extension into some kind of the branding world. So I get why they would use that term. But I didn't really have that frustration when I got into acting because my very first film was with such a brilliant director who I was dying to learn from and who would teach but also give me space to kind of go and explore on my own what I would do with that character and it was just such a wow it was so liberating and so daunting at the same time because it was my first project ever but I have to say that since then I have had very high standards for myself. (laughs) How could you not? We're talking about Slumdog Millionaire, which we're going to talk about in more detail. (laughs) What an amazing first experience. Yes. And I always wanted that level of directing to come from my director and that level of genius to come from the screenwriter. The expectations were (laughs) really, really high. I got spoiled, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, in a good way. In a good way. Your husband, Corey, is a photographer. What do you love about being part of a creative couple? Mm. You're very creative in your work, but you are creative. Your husband is creative. What's it like for you as a creative couple? That's a good question. I think Corey is a blend. Like People have obviously seen his photography and his creative side of things, but he's also very much a producer as well, which is also you know, a very creative art because you've got to be creative when you're producing. Absolutely, yes. And he's also really good in like the business world and real estate. And so he's just kind of like a bit of an all-rounder in many ways. And I think what works really well for our team as a couple is that we both are very diverse in our interests and that makes the relationship a lot more fun because we get to learn from each other all the time, you know, and would I do the things that he's doing and would he ever act? Never. (laughs) Right. And I hate numbers and anything to do with finance and not my thing. (laughs) But we always say that our partnership benefits from the two of us filling the gaps that 
we kind of don't want to fill in our own lives by ourselves. We want someone else to do that part for us and we want to be supported in that part. And so that's how I see the creativity in our relationship really working for us. We were talking a little earlier about your beautiful baby, Rumi. Has Rumi affected your work in any way in terms of how you approach your work? Maybe even in a practical sense, how you arrange your schedule. How has Rumi affected the way that you're working today? At the moment, it's definitely more on a practical level because I have my own production company. So I really pretty much know on a creative level, the kind of projects I want to engage with in terms of creativity, in terms of the kind of roles I play. So that, of course, is very clear to me. But on the practical level, scheduling and all of that stuff, Rumi kind of <laughs> takes comes into you know priority number one position. And I... I do really want to enjoy this first year of motherhood because I know it, I mean, it's already been seven months and it just feels like it's just flown by and I constantly say this child is just growing too quickly. And I am, you know, every minute I look away and there's something new that's happening and I literally don't want to miss a thing. So this first year, it's all about taking on projects that don't take me away from him for too long and projects that he can basically be with me through most of it. Before we get more into acting and your projects, tell me about your work with Anya. Can you tell us a little bit about Anya? Yes, absolutely. So Anya came into my life when I was five months pregnant. Women's health, specifically reproductive health, well, just women's well-being, I would say, in, in general, has always been of great importance to me. When I was pregnant, I knew that as much as, you know, we all put so much focus on the pregnancy months and the first trimester and the second trimester, and then this happens and then that happens. And then this is what you do. And this is what you don't do. There's so much focus on while you're in your pregnant months to focus on the newborn and got to buy the clothes and you got to buy the crib and then the rocker and God knows what not. There's like 600 things that you'll never use. And then you end up buying them all. And then the one thing that always gets forgotten about, at least in America, because that's definitely not the case back home in India, is the postpartum period and how intense and crucial and kind of wild it can be. And if you are not prepared for it, it can really, really hit you like a ton of bricks and make you spiral down a path that you least expected. And so that preparation for me was very key because back home in India, there is so much focus on the postpartum period. And there's um, women are literally taken into their mother's household and taken care of for the first 40 days. They don't do anything. It's all about caring for mother, caring for the newborn. And there's always family members, the female family members doing it. Or there's, you know, like we have doulas here back home. We have you know, someone who's really good with baby massages, mother massages, and all of like cooking food, all of it. So my mom had that for both her babies. And I'm in Austin at this point, knowing that I'm not going to be able to even go back to India and quite frankly wanted to have my baby in Austin. So I needed to prepare my own postpartum sanctuary for me. And while I was in the process of putting it all together, a friend of mine told me about 
Jane and Ariana and their company Anya and that they were looking for some sort of partnership, but to kind of take the messaging of the postpartum period, you know, across the nation and help it achieve scale. Right. It just felt like such a natural fit because I was already in that process and I was doing it so organically already for myself. And for Anya, what I thought would end up happening is I would be experiencing a lot of things in real time and be able to share things real in real time. So yeah, we've kind of recorded a bunch of things. Like breastfeeding was really tough for me in the first couple of months. And we've done a couple of, you know, Q and A's and recorded chats on that Amazing. to share it, to kind of normalize yeah. the talking of the stuff that is not really easy in the postpartum period. Relationships is definitely one of them as well. Like one big topic for me, because for anyone who's had a child, they know that the first thing you kind of hit a, a real wall with is communication with your partner and how you communicate with your partner and, and the sleep deprivation that makes that communication that much harder. Tackling all of that is just one other thing in the sea of things that you've got to tackle in your postpartum period. So we're really hoping with Anya, we can not just send out the message to the women who need it, but send it out to their families and ultimately and hopefully the government. <laughs> You're providing support and information, which some people just don't have access to, right? Exactly. So first and foremost, of course, our focus is getting support out to women when they need it the most and not having them have to do 3 a.m. Google searches and come up with 600 different answers and not know which answer to go with because all of them just are contradicting each other. Yes. Um, so to have verified doctor approved solutions out there. Switching gears, what do you enjoy most about your craft and how does it feed you as an artist? I truly enjoy my craft this much because it's constantly throwing new challenges at me. It's never the same. It's never boring. It's never dull. I get to embody different characters all the time. And the preparation act of getting into the skin of that character, really understanding her. And very first, you have the jitters because you're kind of, oh my, I'm going to be able to burst to life. It's such an unknown territory till you've kind of done it over and over and over again. And that's the difference between theater and film, you know, and film and TV, because you just come and you do your own prep. Sometimes our rehearsals, and I'm so happy when there are rehearsals because you really get a chance to kind of practice it a little bit. But most of the time there isn't that time, you know, to kind of really go deep and rehearse. Whereas in theater, you're rehearsing for so many days, months even, before you can take your craft to the stage. Yeah. And and so it's so different with film and TV, but the nervousness is what always gets me excited. And like I said, also makes me, terrifies me sometimes because I'm like, do I even know what I am doing? And then as you start doing it and as you start exploring it bit by bit, you just realize how many layers there are to it. And I think that gets me really excited to kind of constantly explore the nuances and layers to the characters I embody. So yeah, I think that's first and foremost, the thing that excites me the most. The second thing would always be the people that I work with. I love meeting new people and not just actors and director and writer. I'm talking about crew as well. There's, you always find gems everywhere you go, you know, and really in the acting world, we're like passing ships, you know, we, we get onto a project, we really, really bond because you have to sometimes, and sometimes you don't really bond. And sometimes you just 
you're working with a nightmare and then you just want to get out of the project. <laughs> right there's that too right yeah Um, but most of the time I would say you know 90 99 percent of the time I I've been very lucky you end up bonding with your cast and your crew and and you kind of move on and you go on to the next one right and there'll be a few people you take with you and sometimes there'll be none and sometimes there'll be many and and you never know what you're getting is there anyone that you've worked with over the years that has made a truly lasting impression on you? Somebody who mm-hmm. maybe it was the way that they approached their craft. Maybe it was their work ethic. Is there anyone over the years that has really created an impression and maybe you've adopted maybe some of their own practices, that kind of thing? There's quite a few, actually. Top of my head, the first name I remember because I was so young when I did that movie was Josh Brolin. I did this movie called You Will Meet a Tall Dark Stranger and he was my co-star. And you know, Love that movie. Josh Brolin is just so established an actor. And here I am, a complete newbie. Don't freaking know what I'm doing. And I'm just standing there being all kinds of nervous. And Hi, I'm on a Woody Allen film. Okay, yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> just, just my third film. And here I am on a Woody Allen film set. And so Josh really helped me relax and gave me some really good you know, nuggets of advice that I feel like I still remember even today. And the main thing I remember him saying is just loosen up, you know, shake it all off, like stop thinking about everything else and shake it all off. And he's just such a brilliant actor. And I just think I really was so lucky that he was my co-star on that particular one. And then I'll tell you an, a little fun story on that project was... To Anthony Hopkins. He's obviously, you know, a legend. And I'm like, oh my God, I don't have any scenes with him, but I knew he was in the trailer one particular day. And I was like, I want to go meet him. And I hear from the AD that he wants to meet me too. And I was like, he wants to meet me. That's kind of, (laughs) does he know me? (laughs) How lovely. And how very kind. And so we end up meeting and I tell him, I'm like, I'm so nervous. It's my first day. I hear actors get fired on a Woody Allen movie if they don't do their job. <laughs> they don't deliver, right? Yeah. And so I'm telling him I'm so nervous. He's going to fire me. And then so Anthony Hopkins says to me, I have the same fear. I'm so nervous. I don't know what I'm doing either. It's just my, it's my second day and I could be going home tomorrow if I'm not doing it right. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> uh hello, what? <laughs> what a great story. Yeah, I think he was being sincere in the way he said it because I looked at him and I was like, of course he's joking. Of course he's just saying that to make me feel better. No. But he actually was being serious that that's how he felt and kind of made me realize that no matter how established you are, no matter how much experience you have, it is okay for you to feel nervous on your first day. Feeling nervous is part of it, but also probably means something in terms of how important it is to you, the job that you'll do, your integrity. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's it's a sign of true professionalism as well, that you really come in prepared and you do the work and then you kind of leave a little bit of room for (laughs) surprises and excitement and, and instinct. And so I do believe that some of the best actors do all the preparation that they have to do and and then always leave a little room for magic. We started to talk about the film Slumdog Millionaire, which was 
almost quite a phenomenon in 2008. It was all anyone was talking about. You were recognized with a BAFTA nomination. And over here in the States, there was MTV and Teen Choice nominations, and you won a Palm Springs International Film Festival Award. The cast won a SAG. When you were working on it, did you feel how special all of it was? The special that I felt about this film was really the people that I worked with. And this goes back to your question about what are the things that makes you uh, most excited about working in film and TV even today. And so I think it was so special because everyone on that project was just absolutely lovely and, and, and talented, but also just making all the newcomers feel supported and perked us up all the time and made sure that we knew what we were doing and never felt, you know, like just complete fish out of the water and, and lost. And so I feel like that kind of cocooning of warmth that, in, uh, that we felt was definitely the most special thing about the film. Now, the success of the film, no, none of us even thought that that was written for us or the film for that matter. In fact, crazy stories that the film was going straight to DVD and it wasn't even going to have an international release. And I think it was at the 11th hour, Fox Searchlight and Peter Rice jumped in and took on the project. But yeah, if for all that, you know, like 50 people would have watched the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think the film was the success that it was in thinking about it years later? I think a couple of things. I think, first of all, there was a lot of sincerity that went into the project being made in the sense that, yes, it was a, a story that was fictionalized and, you know, it's not like a true story in any which way, but the emotions behind it, them were all sincere that this young kid and the underdog story and everything that he went through and the only thing that mattered to him at the end of the day was the love of his life and you know not the money not the fame not the the glamour but just the love of his life and I think the sincerity in which that story was told is what really connected with people and then of course I feel like the timing of the film was also kind of perfect <laughs> the world was going through the economic crash and uh, yeah it was a bad year for a lot of people financially and we all needed a little bit of uplifting moment you know we all needed to feel like in the end there will be that silver lining and that film provided that hope in many ways so I feel like that was another thing that was genuinely all about right timing, not something that we could have even tried to make up, you know, because some dog millionaires certainly did not plan the economic crash. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then, of course, I feel uh, India, you know, the very, very important element and Bombay, my Mumbai, my city that I grew up in, played such an important role in, in opening people's eyes to another culture, another world. But basically, in the same way Parasite did recently. Yes. And I think in so many ways, we kind of undermine a film from another culture, a film with actors that we don't know, to really mean something to the world. And we always think it has to be the same people the, in the English language. That's the only way that you can connect with people. And actually, that's quite false, you know, because really a good story is a good story. And story is king in order to make anything a success. And that's exactly what I feel Slumdog Millionaire had going for it, which was 
a very solid, fun, entertaining, emotional story. Your audition process for the film was extensive. It lasted about six months and you grew exponentially as an artist and an actress during that time. How so? And what chops did you develop? What did you take away after completing that film and working with Danny Boyle? Of course, the audition process, working with Danny Boyle and the casting director, Lavin Tundon, who was absolutely fantastic. I think both of them really kind of put me in their school of acting, you know, because I had never been to, uh, you know, very formal acting school or done any formal acting courses. And so it was really being baptized by fire. And it goes right into it with the best people out there and you learn from them. And the thing that I learned from both of them and specifically from Danny as well was to keep instincts sharp because we all have our instincts and then a lot of us will second guess it. Mm we think we have to act or we think we have to do something to get to that same end result. Whereas sometimes you just have to flow and just be in it. And it's like that uncertainty. You don't know where this is ending. You don't know where this is landing, but you just go with it. And that rush of doing it in that way is really Danny's style, you know, and I'm really glad I got to do that for six months and <laughs> in the audition process so that I could take that into obviously the filming process, but take that experience further into everything else that I would do after that. So yeah, I think it definitely taught me that. And the other thing it taught me is to always take on every project as if it were your first. So the same level of preparation, same level of dedication and commitment and no slacking. We talked about Danny Boyle on Slumdog. You've worked with some really visionary directors. We mentioned Woody Allen, uh, Julian Schnabel, Terrence Malick, Hillbilly Elegy, which you were in, uh, Ron Howard. How would you characterize some of these directors that you've worked with in terms of their creative process? Is there anything that you observed about each? For example, you know, Woody's eye for visuals and style, was that apparent in the making? I think with each of the directors... Julian Schnabel was my second director I ever worked with. And actually a fun story about that is that Danny put me on tape for that film because I needed to audition for it. And we were busy promoting Slumdog Millionaire. And so Danny Boyle came to, you know, we went in the same hotel and he came to my hotel room to help me put myself on tape. And I was like, I don't even know what I'm doing. <laughs> what an amazing uh, casting director, director to put me on tape, you know, reading. Partner. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was really sweet. Julian was my second director that I worked with. And of course, you know, he's an artist himself. And so that seeped into the way he directed as well. He saw every frame as if he was seeing a painting and the way he would direct and the way he would give notes was also pretty much in the same lines. It was almost a little abstract at times, but you just had to kind of trust it and go with it. And you know, you would arrive at something beautiful. And I think from what I learned from that project was surrender. With Terrence Malick, pretty much the same. I learned surrender. With Woody Allen, I feel the way he tells his stories is very particular. And watching him and watching all of your co-stars in the film, co-actors in the film, play it in a certain way makes you realize, mm. oh, this is the style. And it's kind of fun going along for a ride with that style of performance as well. There's a lot of nervousness. There's a lot of like fumbling and <laughs> around words. And it's how he writes his scripts as well. And then with Ron Howard, oh my God, what a brilliant human and a brilliant director. 
he is, of course, uh, an actor himself. And so the notes that he would give really came from the perspective of an actor as well, you know, and, and of course, he's been directing forever and directed some of the best, some of my favorite films out there. In fact, the year we were promoting Dog Millionaire, he had Frost Nixon and right. they were campaigning for that one as well around the Oscars. And I just remember loving that film so much, thinking to myself, I don't know if he stand a chance. I mean, like, look at the actors they have in that film. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, they were going... Oh, we're just going to the Slumdog Millionaire party. So, yeah, I think with Ron, it was definitely just really trusting him and surrendering again to his style of directing. And they've all, every director I've worked with has had a very distinctive, different style. How do you prepare yourself for your work? Yes, there's the research, right? But are there any practices and rituals that help you tune in? What needs to be happening for you, maybe from a lifestyle perspective or a process perspective when it's time to dig into a project? It's pretty simple for me. I have to really know my script. If I'm doing a dialect, I have to really have had enough time practicing that with my dialect coach and basically making that feel like second nature so that I'm not stressed out about it or nervous about it or conscious of it. The thing that I love doing the most is preparing playlists especially if the character is like very intense and, you know, I, I, I love music. I love listening to music. So I prepare a playlist. Uh, if it's not a playlist, then, you know, for me, it's really important that the costume and the hairstyle and anything that I'm doing for a certain character is different from what I would do in everyday life. You know, I just don't want it to be an extension of me. Otherwise, it's just a little confusing. <laughs> so I always try and add one little thing, you know, and there's something that maybe the audience won't see, but it's something that I do for myself. It's just the one little tweak that I would do to kind of just help me get to that mindset faster. And then really, I just prepare my environment for success. You know, I try to go to bed early when I have an early morning call time and I try to eat healthy while I'm filming because inevitably by a week three or week four, you're eating all the junk at craft services. So grabbing and going. Yes, exactly. So it's it, it happens. So I try to prepare for success even before we start filming on a health note. When you immerse yourself in that way, in the research process or you know, learning about a character, how do you shake off a role? Is it difficult to tune out? Which of your projects were harder than the others to shake loose? How did you feel? How did you regroup, for example, after Slumdog or after some of these other films, how do you shake off a role? Is there a process for that as well? I think the hardest role to shake off was Trishna. Yes. When I did Trishna, it was too intense. You know, I love playing characters that are not anywhere similar to who I am, but Trishna's character was so painfully submissive that it made me really, really struggle with you know, just coming out of it. I think that also informed my future choices and characters that I want to play. I don't mind playing someone who's submitted um, to a certain degree, but not the whole way. And so 
I just realized that that's not something I even want to put out there. Interesting. As a message for women, you know? Yes. Yeah, it was, that was a very tough one. And the truth is, the hard truth is, harsh truth is that characters like Trishna exist. In fact, I met them, the exact same women. Yeah. I met them all over Rajasthan when I was doing my research. And I know they exist all over the world. I know they exist in America. I know they exist everywhere. But for those very women, I want them to feel seen and I want them to have hope. And so the characters that I take on now for me have to have an angling towards the end, towards hope, even if it's not like ultimate hope. There's something, there's a glimmer, there is promise. And I think that's what I want to play with all my characters, do with all my characters from now on. Another intense role that I played, but I had so much fun playing and I was exhausted, but I was like, give me more. It's almost like a drug was Jazz Mitra from Gorilla when I did the TV show with John. Yes. It was intense because she was radical and desperate to kind of prove herself in a man's world and proving herself in a man's world by taking charge in ways that was not expected of her. And so I feel like that character also kind of drained me, but in a good way, because it kind of constantly kept me filling me up with more and more and more every single day on set. And I just had more to give, more to give. I get drained and then I get filled up again, go in, give it some more. Probably one of my favorite characters I've played ever. Do you have a most extraordinary experience in all that you've experienced in your work when you think of what you've done so far? Has anything sort of stopped you in your tracks, causing you to pause and take it all in? All of it. All of it. I always say it's like, it's a miracle that I even work in a highly competitive industry where we're replaced in a blink of an eye (laughs) and where you try so hard to be good. Like the only thing we can do is be really good at what you do, but you can't control so much of the other elements that go into it. You can't control the success of a film. You can't control where it lands. You can't control how it's marketed. I mean, yes, you can to a certain degree, but you can't control how people think of it, even if it's you put millions of dollars into marketing. So I just think it's a miracle that I'm even working and I'm very grateful for it. How important are your surroundings as a creative? I'm interested in your perspective as someone who has planted roots in LA, India, London. How do you feel towards each? And is there anywhere you feel most inspired? I feel most inspired for sure playing characters that have never been played before. So that could come from any part of the world. At this point, I feel what is sorely missing. I mean, I think it's, no, it's definitely changing. I mean, I just watched uh, the first episode of Miss Marvel yesterday and I was so excited for my friend Sharmina Bechinoy and for the cast of that film and for every creative person that came on board to make that happen. And of course, to the triad at, at Marvel who had the courage to make it happen. I feel inspired in all three of them because I've lived in all three of them in equal measure. I definitely love the English accent the most. So whenever I have to do a full RP, I'm just like, give it to me. And of course, I love uh, working hard and getting it right, nailing it. The American accent is possibly the hardest, but nonetheless, I've done it before and we'll be doing it in the future. And it just requires a lot more practice. And that's great. The Indian accent is in me it's very easy for me to do it and I know exactly how far to not go to make it not gimmicky right 
And stories that I feel are lacking right now for me are the Indian American stories and or the Indian stories um, or the British Indian stories. For me, those are the ones that are not present in full force the way I would like it to be, the way other stories are told. However, that change has already happened. We can see it already happened with Bridgerton. We can see it's happening with Miss Marvel. Uh, Mindy Kaling's constantly doing that in comedy. And so I feel like that moment is here now and specifically here for the women. It's, I think it's been there for the men for a while and now it's finally here for the women. And Freebird, your production company, will be tackling stories like this? 100%. We are well on our way and about to make some big moves. Exciting. What inspires you in general, would you say? Do you feel the need to fill your creative tank at times? How do you approach doing that both for work and for personal inspiration? Separation, stepping away, because sometimes it can just feel, especially when you're running a company and it's a very tight, small company with three people (laughs) and all three of us have to tackle each other's work sometimes and there's a lot of reading material and there's a lot of different stories and you're getting pulled in different directions and I'm acting as well and raising a child so I feel separation is important so I need to kind of move away immerse in nature get back into a book or a script or whatever it is I'm reading so I can see it differently. Mr. Malcolm's List is being released on July 1st. It's wonderful. What did you enjoy about working on a period piece? Ah, oh, I like doing things I have never done before because it gives me that added challenge of exploring the character, the world, the culture, the texture of the film and really being immersed. It's the kind of work that I really enjoy doing, which is staying fully immersed. I don't like sitting idle. I hate waiting around in trailers. I just like being on the go, 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 go. You know, I just, you know, just like working if I'm working. And when I'm resting, I truly want to just rest. So with Mr. Malcolm's List, what I really enjoyed was doing something that I'd never done before and working with a group of people that were just as excited to be part of a project where we know be doing something that the world has never seen before. You know, we'd be breaking some new ground here and the kind of partnership that we all felt doing it together was truly remarkable. I still think of it as this and Gorilla, I would say easily were two of my favorite cast members that I've ever worked with. It seemed like a lot of fun, a wonderful cast. What kind of vision does director Emma Holly Jones bring to this story? She comes from such a wonderful background of, you know, the commercial world as well where she could see this film and tell the story with the depths of its emotion, but also making it commercially uh, fun and kind of attractive, you know, to a whole set of audience across the board, all age groups, specifically women, because we never feel like, you know, there's things that are made for us at times. It's just like, why am I watching this extremely violent <laughs> only full of very, very explicit sex or, you know, stories that really we can't relate to at times. And I feel like this sweeping romance and this seeing women being represented in their 30s in society and and their struggles, I feel it's something that Emma really understood why we needed to do it this way uh, and why it needed to be cast a certain way. So it was really fun working with someone who 
had the right idea for it. And really, I think the other thing is her determination to get it made was really the thing that drew me to this project. Your character, Selena, is mixed race in the film. Indian and white, the film portrays English society in the 1800s as a mixed race society. What are your thoughts on that? My character was, yes, mine because my mom's from the English countryside. She's definitely portrayed as mixed race. They're all different races in the film. So I think this is a good question because we want to not make this just about race because we want everyone to feel, you know, seen. Right. Really, for me, this project was why is it that we don't see people of other races in sweeping romances, in rom-coms, in period movies? Not so much about we have to make this film because we are trying to make a point about race. (laughs) We're really trying to make a point about love. Right. We're really trying to make a point about schemes. We're really trying to make a point about the fact that people of all color and races We all feel rejected at times. We all feel vengeful at times and we all fall in love. And and so I think that is truly what for me was a focal point of this film. And I also love the 90s rom-com so much. And this for me was the perfect marriage and mashup of the 90s rom-com meets Jane Austen. It was fantastic. The film centers also around this strict list that Mr. Malcolm has about who would exactly be a perfect partner for him. What do you think about this idea of having qualifications or a mental checklist of qualifications? How do you think that carries today to modern dating? What idea permeates, do you think, in terms of modern dating, app dating, trying to meet one's match, the checklist that people tend to carry with them? Are you someone who has found yourself trying to call a checklist of your own over the years? Yes, I've certainly had my own checklist. And I think it is highly important if you are very serious about getting married, you need to know what you're looking for. You need to know what you will uh, make do with and you need to know what you're willing to compromise on as well. And if there are no compromises, then you need to know that as well. (laughs) Uh, And so I feel for me, it is a very practical way of finding your partner whether it's a mental checklist or something that you write down or kind of, I don't know, um, laminate and keep. I don't even know what you do with the checklist. (laughs) I certainly wrote mine on my phone in my notes. And that's just like my written list. I had a mental checklist as well. So I'm happy to inform and let everyone know that Corey met all the requirements on my list. (laughs) Happy to report he passed. Yeah, of course he did. I think it is, for me, a very practical thing. Of course, for Julia in the film, it's the most preposterous thing ever. Like, how dare someone reject her based on a list that someone made? And, you know, it reminds me of that episode from Friends where Ross or Rachel discovers that Ross had made a list about her or a pros and cons list. And <laughs> yes, and it really hurt. And of course, if I found out that there were mean things on a list, I would <laughs> I would be hurt myself. But for all intents and purposes, this was a private list and no one was meant to read Mr. Malcolm's list, but it got leaked. <laughs> You're currently filming My Mother's Wedding in London. Kristen Scott Thomas's directorial debut and starring Scarlett Johansson and Sienna Miller. Is there anything at all that you can share about the role? I can't share anything about the role, but I can I can certainly tell you it is one of the most fun casts ever. What a group of women. 
Sounds like it. How does Kristen Scott Thomas approach her work as a director? Can you share a little bit about that? I will say that I really admired her as an actress my whole life, you know, and she is just such a genius at what she does. And there are very few people who can bring a certain kind of creative madness into their work and just make it translate into like make it almost magical make it almost so elevated that you feel completely lost in it and you are so mesmerized by it or hypnotized by it that you just you're invested through and through that's the actor in her that's the director in her what do you think of the way that television and film or series and film rather have kind of merged i mean about time it's been happening for a while now already and you know film actors are doing tv shows and tv actors are now getting opportunities in movies and i don't know why there should be a difference in medium you know entertainment is entertainment telling a story is telling a story whatever the form of whether it's you know in a series or a you know or in a film but i have no other answer other than about time <laughs> frida it was good to talk to you thanks for such a great podcast chat Thank you very much. Bye.